Well, good evening, and it's great to be with you this evening. Thank you for having me to join you. Um, bring greetings from Beeston. I can see a few familiar faces out there as well, who we've had with us before, and um, privileged to share God's word here tonight. And trust he has much to say to us from Daniel chapter 3. Um, shall I pray as we come to God's word again now? Our Father, we've just sung a prayer asking you to speak to us tonight. And we, we pray that again now, asking that through your word here, you might speak to us. You might change us. Thank you for this story that happened thousands of years ago, but has something to say to us tonight that you will speak through it. And we ask that you be present with us tonight and do work in our hearts for your glory. Because we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know um, times when you've had a conflict of loyalties. Um, I find this happens a lot in our family. Um, We have it with the weekly shop sometimes. We have it when we have to decide who to get our energy from. My wife is one for for being loyal. I'm one for having a deal. And we have a little bit of a conflict of loyalties there. Um, But for me, recently, in, in in our town, we've just had three new barbers open. And since I was a boy, I've been to the same one every year, um, and each one of those does a better deal. Um, so the question for me is, am I going to stay loyal to the one I've been to as a boy, or am I going to go somewhere where I can get something cheaper? And I've chosen to stay with the barbers I've always been with. Now there's just a few um, silly examples, I'm sure you can think of your own, but we, we know in our lives, don't we, bigger conflicts of loyalty as well. When two friends fall out, and both of them want you to take their sides, you don't know what to do. Uh, maybe it's when your boss is demanding that you stay late at work, but your family want you to be at home, and you're not sure how on earth you can keep everyone happy. We all know, don't we, that there's those crisis points in our life where we have to decide who comes first, who's going to get our time, our money, ourselves, and the decisions that we make are going to show who, do, who we're loyal to. Now, our passage tonight We have three men who had a huge crisis of loyalties. They were faced with the biggest decision of their lives. Um, These are guys who'd grown up in Jerusalem, who'd been taught all their lives that there's one God, and that the first command is that you bow to no other God before him. And now they've been taken off to Babylon. They're here before a foreign king who's telling them to forget all that and bow instead to a statue. And they've got a decision to make. Will they bow or will they not? Because what they do will show who comes first. will show whether they're loyal to their gods or they're going to be loyal to this king. Now I'm sure we'll probably not face a situation as extreme as this one. But as we live in a, in a very real sense as exiles in this world, we should expect there to be conflicts of loyalty in our lives. Called, it will be called by those around us to make our lives about everything that those around us make their lives about. There'll be a long list of things that we're called to put before God, to put before our faith. We'll feel the tug of of being called to bow along with everyone else. As we feel the pressure to do that, as things call for our loyalty, our passage tonight is here to help us because it shows us how to remain loyal to God. So let's listen to what God has to say to us tonight. And we're going to see three things from this passage. Our first is this. 
the world demands our loyalty. Now, we didn't look at it tonight, but back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has just had a vision of a huge statue. Um, a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron and clay. Um, and it seems that after having this vision of the statue, he's been inspired. Because in verse 1, he built his own image of gold. A huge statue of his own. Just like in his dream, this is, this is a gigantic statue. It's 60 cubits high, 90 feet it's about as tall as the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Brazil. It would have been the tallest thing in his kingdom. And, but, but thinking back to his dream, unlike his dream, this isn't a statue with gold and silver and bronze. This is all gold. There's not just a head of gold. It's completely gold. Um, and again, unlike his dream, he's not responding to this and trying to act it out. There's no, no stone that comes and crashes into this statue. Um, there's just a statue, tolling, standing tall and proud. Um, you see, Nebuchadnezzar has been given a vision in chapter 2 to humble him. And he's not listened, he's not responded. Instead, he's continuing to exalt himself. Um, he doesn't want just to be the head of gold. He wants his kingdom to be the whole statue of gold. He wants to cling on to his kingdom. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar sets up his image here, we should have Bible alarm bells going off in our heads. You see, this is a towering structure set up on a plane in Babylon. Now, does that sound familiar? The Tower of Babel. Now, back in Genesis 11, people set themselves up against God to make a name for themselves. And we know, don't we, that that didn't end well. And whilst Babel led to the scattering of the nations, Nebuchadnezzar's aim here is to gather and unite his nation. Look at verse 2. Let's read it again. He summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. This is a statue Nebuchadnezzar hopes is going to unite his vast empire. And so he orders that everyone who's got authority should assemble for it to be set up and inaugurated. And so obediently, from all the corners of the empire, his many officials come to see his statue. And as they stand before it, they're told why they've been summoned. They're not just here to admire it, they're here to worship it. Look at verse 4. The heralds loudly proclaimed, This is what you're commanded to do. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now what's going on here? Is Nebuchadnezzar trying to set up a new religion? Is he trying to give his empire some new gods? Well, I think yes and no. Although the command here is to bow to the statue, it's not really about the statue here. It's about King Nebuchadnezzar. In, in verse 1 to, to 7, King Nebuchadnezzar's title is repeated seven times. He's the one who, who, who is in full view here. He's the one who's calling the shots. And as king, he's chosen to use religion as a tool to advance his own ends, to boost his power, and to make sure that his kingdom stays submissive to him. And he's very clever in how he does this. He's not telling the people to give up their gods 
or to get rid of their religions, they can keep them on one condition, that they bow to his statue. Because by bowing, they show that he comes first and that their gods, their lands and anything else comes second to him as king. You see, this is about loyalty. Nebuchadnezzar's message to his empire is clear. In my kingdom, you give, you don't give loyalty to anything else before you give it to me. I must come first. And you need to show it by bowing to my statue. And if anyone's in doubt, the king gives a very strong incentive, doesn't he? In verse 6, he says, whoever does not fall down and worship it will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. He makes it very simple, doesn't he? Bow or burn. The choice is yours. If you defy me as king, if you refuse to give me your loyalty, I will roast you alive in my furnace. And so in verse 7, as the music plays, right on cue, the people get down on their faces and they worship the image. As Nebuchadnezzar demands their loyalty, they give it to him without a moment's hesitation. Now, although there are many ways that life in the United Kingdom is very different to life in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, this rings so true, doesn't it? We live in a world that's constantly calling for our loyalty, whether it's from our society or our government or from the media, whether it's at work or at home or at school. There are people who expect us to put their agenda before God's agenda. Maybe it's friends, maybe it's colleagues, maybe it's even family. I'm sure you can think of people in your life who demand that you put their expectations, their priorities, their desires first, before faith, before church, before God. And as people demand our loyalty, it's not a statue that we're told to bow down to, it's it's the idols of our day. The God we're told to worship is the God of money, the God of comfort, the God of success. We're we're told to bow down with everyone else to to the the agenda of of our society. Not the God of the Bible. The voice we're told to listen to is the opinion of the media, the views of the majority, the wisdom of people who are experts. Not the voice of the Creator who made us. We're told we'll only be happy, we'll only be approved of We'll only fit in if we put those things first, not God first. Now, in many ways, we're told to bow with the crowd. And as we're told to bow, we're not faced with the threat of a furnace, but we're faced with the threat of being labelled, of being mocked, of being excluded, of being told that we're not with the times. It's not the fear of the flames that puts the pressure on for us. But maybe it's the fear of missing out, the fear of being unfulfilled, of of losing the approval of others. We're told that if we're not loyal, if we won't bow, well, it's not our bodies that are going to burn, but it might be our happiness. It might be our career. It might be our future that goes up in smoke for us. You see, this world demands our loyalty in so many ways. But as it does, we need to see 
that it doesn't deserve it. And I think that's the point that these verses are subtly making here. I don't know if you noticed as the passage was read out how repetitive some of those sentences were. And that long list of positions in the empire that were just a, a mouthful to keep on repeating, that could have been edited down so simply. Um, the full rundown of the instruments in the band that just felt a little bit over the top to need to list every single one, every time. It almost felt like it was trying too hard to be impressive. I think we're meant to see that as glorious as this statue looks, as important and as impressive as this ceremony appears, it's just hollow. You see, for all its glory, Nebuchadnezzar's statue is nothing special. It's just the best that he could come up with. Below the gold, there's just a lump of wood because solid gold couldn't stand up that high. The crowds that gather are not coming because they love this king, but because they've been told that they must. They're just a bunch of guys who are terrified of this king and will do whatever it takes to save their skins. You see, the whole occasion, it's not some kind of spontaneous gesture of the nation to praise their king. It's contrived. This worship has to be orchestrated. It has to be enforced. You see, below the power, below the pomp and the glory, there's no substance here at all. It's hollow. It's empty. And in the same way, as this world demands our loyalty, we need to see that it doesn't deserve it. That although like this, it might try to manufacture our worship and get us to bow, we need to see that the things it worships are hollow and empty, that the glory is just skin deep. That if we set our hearts on these things, we're settling for a sham. We're buying the lie like the crowds. Because the truth is that the things we seek after will never be enough. The idols we're told to bow down will never fulfill us. The approval that we might want to have will never bring us the security that we want. Success won't last. Even freedom is never free when we get it. We need to see that whatever it is that we're called to bow down and worship with everyone else is not worth it. It's never worthy of our hearts. And so whatever it is for you, whatever it is that you're tempted to put before God and give your loyalty to, although the crowds might bow down to it, you don't need to join them. Although others might try and force you to worship, you don't need to dance to the same tune. And although the things that we might be tempted to worship might glitter like gold, We're not to believe the lie. Because just like Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the glory is just skin deep. It's shallow. It's hollow. You see, this world demands our loyalty. But it certainly doesn't deserve it. That's the first thing we see tonight. But the second thing we see from this passage is that whilst this world demands our our loyalty... It's God alone who deserves our loyalty. Now, at the end of verse 7, everything seems to be going well. The music's played, the people have bowed. Nebuchadnezzar's got his loyalty, and so everyone can go home. But there's a problem in verse 8. Some of the astrologers bring to King Nebuchadnezzar. There are some Jews 
that didn't bow down. Specifically, verse 12. Some of the Jews that you, king, set over the affairs of your nation. They don't think your command applies to them. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Now nobody likes a telltale, do they? But these guys are terrible. Um, they, they, they came forward to, to get their teeth. Literally the, the passage says, get their teeth into these Jews. It feels like they've been waiting for this moment to get even with them. And it's really shocking. If you think back to chapter 2, Daniel and his friends are the ones who've just saved the lives of these astrologers. Um, they They were on death row because they couldn't interpret the dream. And Daniel and his friends did and saved their lives. You might think that they might be thankful, but instead they're jealous. They're they're jealous that the king has promoted foreigners over them. And so when the opportunity comes to take it back, they take it. They hope that this is the day they're going to get their jobs back. And they'll get back in with the king. And so gleefully, you you can imagine it, they bring the news to Nebuchadnezzar. And they get the response that they're hoping for. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage. And he summons these men to come before him to answer his accusa- these accusations. And as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego come and stand in the presence of the king, rather than just sentencing them there and then, he gives them the opportunity to prove themselves innocent. Verse 14, he asks them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? And then, in verse 15, he gives them the opportunity to reconsider. Another chance to prove their loyalty. That if they'll get down and bow, then it can all be forgotten. But if not, they'll be thrown into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's crystal clear, isn't he? Give me your loyalty or prepare to die. But at the end of verse 15, he's got one more thing to say. And I think it's here that we see the real battle that's going on here. You see, this isn't a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. This is a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord their God. You see what he says in verse 15? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He asks, if you stand against me, then what God can help you. You see, it's me that reigns in Babylon, not him. It's me that you belong to, not your God. And right now, it's me who gets to decide whether you live or die. And so is your God, who's left you here, the one who deserves your loyalty? Or is it me, the one who holds your life in my hands? And in the same way for us, as the world's demands our loyalty, it doesn't just stop there. It tries to undermine our loyalty to God, just like Nebuchadnezzar. It asks us questions of the God we serve. As we refuse to bow, it says, is God really worth that? Is he better than what we have to offer? Is he worth giving so much up for? Because from where we stand, it doesn't look like he is. They ask, as you set yourself against us, can your God really help you? Is he able to intervene? Does he have any power to stop us hurting you? Because from where we stand, 
It doesn't look like he has any power at all. And as the world, like Nebuchadnezzar, seeks to undermine our God, we're not to listen. Rather, we're to respond like these men here. And their response in verse 16 is wonderful, isn't it? It sends tingles down your spine. This is what these men say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. When asked to defend themselves, they said there's no need to justify what we've done to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Because what we've done is entirely right. We do it again without a moment's thought. You say our God can't deliver, but we know he can. His hand is stronger than yours. And he's well able to save us from your furnace. We're not scared. But even if he doesn't, if he chooses not to intervene this time, we want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will never ever bow to anyone but him. Not your gods, not your statue, not to you, great King Nebuchadnezzar. Because our God, our God alone, is worthy of our loyalty. And we'd rather die than deny him. Now what a speech. What faith in God. And perhaps you think tonight, how is that possible? I could never be as brave as those men. Well, the secret for them was not in themselves. This didn't come from within. This came from God. You see, the key for these men is where their eyes are fixed. It's not on themselves. It's not on King Nebuchadnezzar. Their eyes are fixed on the God that they serve. And as he fills their vision, as they see him clearly for who he is, there is no doubt in their minds that he is the God who deserves their loyalty. He's not a God of hollow, skin-deep glory. He's the God of infinite and authentic glory. The one who made them, who made Nebuchadnezzar and made the hands that he claims to hold them in. He's not a God who desperately seeks to be worshipped, but a God who is self-sufficient, who doesn't need to orchestrate people's worship, but deserves it for who he is. Not a God of borrowed power or pretended power, but a God of eternal power. You can't just use, use fire like Nebuchadnezzar, but the one who invented fire, the one to whom even the flames bow to. And as Nebuchadnezzar uses all his power to intimidate them, as they look to God, they're not scared because their eyes aren't on Nebuchadnezzar. They're on the greater king that they serve. And looking at him, they see Nebuchadnezzar in perspective. There's no doubt about who they should be loyal to. Because for all of his big talk, Nebuchadnezzar is tiny. He's puny. He's powerless when set alongside the Lord. 
Now just for a moment, I want to take you back to school. Picture the scene, one break time in the playground. And, and in the corner of the yard, there's a small year seven boy with a tall year 11 bully standing and towering over him. He's come over to demand his lunch money and he threatened that if he doesn't give it, he'll be beaten up. Now just put yourself in that boy's shoes for a minute. As you look up at the bully, as he squares up to you, you know that his threat isn't empty. He's, he's well able to hurt you. And you know there's one choice. Give him the money and get him to go away. But imagine that as you start to dig in your pocket to get out the cash, there's another head that appears above the bullies. It's your big brother in sixth form. He's seen the commotion, he's come over and, and he wants to know what's going on. Now in that instant, everything changes, doesn't it? Your fear melts away, you put your money back into your pocket, you stand tall because you know it's going to be okay. The bully's not changed but he's been put in perspective. And you know that there's nothing to fear because your brother's there. And in the same way, as this world squares up to us, in the many ways it might seek to intimidate us and demand our loyalty, we need to look up and we need to see that behind and above the worst bully on earth is our brother the Lord Jesus Christ. As we fix our eyes on him, a real king, with real power, the one who really holds our lives in his hands, we see a king who truly deserves our loyalty. A king who's worth looking stupid for. A king who's worth losing out for. A king even to die for. So who's your bully? Who is it that most intimidates you? Who is it that claims to hold power over your life? Well, this passage calls you not to look at them, but to look at your brother. Look to Christ, the one who's only worthy of our loyalty. So this world demands our loyalty, but God alone deserves our loyalty. And finally tonight, God will honour our loyalty. Now in verse 19, the king's anger boils over. He's furious with them. The chance has gone. And so now he is determined to destroy these men. And in the verses that follow, there's a desperation about Nebuchadnezzar. He does all he can to make sure that these men die. He's taking no chances. Um, In verse 19, he orders that the already blazing furnace is made seven times hotter. Um, In verse 20, he orders his strongest men to tie them up as tightly as he can, as they can. There's no chance of them getting away. And verse 21, he's so urgent that there's not even time to strip them of their clothes, to save them. They've got to die. They've got to die now. And there's no doubt about whether this furnace could kill. In verse 22, even the soldiers that threw them in were killed. And so in verse 23, these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. For all their loyalty, these men were not saved from the flames. It looked like their God had failed them. 
And you can imagine, can't you, as they fell into the flames, Nebuchadnezzar sitting back, wanting to savour that moment, to enjoy watching them die. But he doesn't get the pleasure. As he looks into the furnace, what he sees makes him jump out of his skin because he sees men walking about in the furnace. Not just three, but four. And he's astonished. And so he asks his advisors, are you sure that the men were bound? They say, yes. Are you sure there were just three? Yes. Well, what can I see? Verse 25. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Although God didn't save these men from the flames, he did deliver them in the flames. God had given them freedom in the flames. Their ropes that bound them were gone. They were free. God had given them protection in the flames that the fire that had proven to kill had left them unharmed. But greatest of all, God had given them his presence in the flames. There was a fourth man with them. And whether this was an angel of God sent to stand with them, or as I'm more persuaded, a pre-incarnate Christ, God was with his people in the flames. He stood with them. He showed in the fire that Nebuchadnezzar was wrong. There was a God who could rescue from his hands. And that these men were right to stand with him. And in the same way, as we give our loyalty to God, sometimes we might avoid the flames, but many times we might not. Jesus says that if we follow him, it's a call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. We should expect it to cost us. It might mean losing out on a promotion at work because God came first. It might mean that you get isolated or rejected at school Because God came first there. It might mean being misunderstood by the people we love the most. Maybe parents or children or friends. Because God came first in our relationships. It might mean us longing for more. Because we put God first. When the world said the opposite. There are many ways that loyalty to God might cost you. But as you suffer, these three men can give us confidence that no matter what you give up for Christ, whatever freedoms or privileges you lose, true freedom is found in him. He rules even as you suffer. That no matter what gets harmed as you follow Christ, whether it's relationships or reputations or dreams, in him we can be utterly certain that the flames can't touch what really matters. And if faithfulness to him means rejection or isolation or just the choice to be lonely, God's promise to each of us tonight is that in the flames, there's a fourth man with us who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps this evening, You feel like you're in the midst of the flames and you need him to say again, I'm with you and I'll never leave you. 
God will honour our loyalty. He will protect us in the flames of affliction. But more, God will deliver us out of the flames. And that's exactly what happens in our passage. Look down to verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And as they come out, um, the officials that gathered to watch the dedication of the statue crowd around them. Uh, They're astonished by what they see. This is something far more impressive than Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. As these men walk free out of the furnace. Now before I um, worked at Beeson Free Church, I used to be a chemistry teacher. And often in the lab there would be fires. Some of them were planned, some of them were unplanned. But you could always tell when there'd been one. Maybe you can remember the smell of the science department at school and the Bunsen burners and the splints. You see, fire leaves its marks. There's always evidence of where it's been. But not here. Verse 27. There are no burns on these men. No singed hairs. There's not even the smell of fire. There's nothing. These men are completely unharmed. The fire has not been able to touch them. And they've come out the other side, not just alive, but, verse 30, promoted to an even better life than before. And just like them, this is God's promise to us. That if we give our loyalty to him, he will commit to keeping us. He will deliver us through the flames and he will bring us through untouched and unharmed to an even better life than the one we leave behind. And the reason we can have this confidence tonight is because Jesus Christ, our Saviour, has passed through the flames ahead of us. That having suffered in our place for our sin, he has opened a path for us through all of our suffering. That means that that we have nothing now to fear in suffering. That in him, the very worst that this world can throw at us cannot really harm us at all. And he's promised that no matter what happens, he will keep us safe, he will shield us in the flames. But even more, we have solid hope that beyond our suffering, just as Christ was raised, we too will be raised. And that one day he will rescue us from the furnace for good. We'll walk out of the fire and into a better life, a resurrection life, where there'll be no more conflicts of loyalty, where we'll be finally free to worship God. We'll step into a better body, a resurrection body, with no burns, no singed tears, no smell of the fire from this life, a body untouched by suffering and sin that will be ours to keep forever. And we'll no longer know his presence as he stands with us in the flames. We'll see him face to face. We'll stand forever with him in glory. This is our hope. This is our confidence in Christ that if we give our loyalty to God, he will honour it and he will keep us.
And the reason we can be so confident that God will honour his loyalty is that his name is staked upon it. Here he saves in order to prove Nebuchadnezzar wrong in verse 13, that there is a God who is able to save his people. There is a God who is worthy of his people's worship. But you see, as God demonstrates his authority here, he's so unlike Nebuchadnezzar. You might expect the story to end, to be very fitting for fire to fall from heaven, to sort out this arrogant king. But it doesn't, does it? You see, God has a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar. He wants to humble him so that even he might give his loyalty to the one king who truly deserves it. And at the end of this passage, there are some encouraging signs, aren't there? In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. See, Nebuchadnezzar admits he was wrong. He praises the God of these men, who he now knows can rescue. He stops the worship of the statue. Instead, he orders that they worship this God, verse 29. He even offers his services to defend that God's name. But he's not there yet, is he? He's not yet bowed his knee. Every time he speaks of God, this is still their God. This isn't his testimony that he's telling. It's theirs. But God is working in him. And chapter 4 is still to come. And there's more planned for this king from God. But as we close, I, I just want to speak to any who tonight have not yet given their loyalty to this God. Maybe that's you here this evening. You know that this God is not yet your God. He's still someone else's God. Maybe you've heard about him from others and you long to know him too, but you don't at the moment. Maybe you've seen others' faith and confidence and hope and you wish that you could have those things as well. Well, the invitation of this passage is that all those things can be yours. Jesus has done everything that's needed for you to call this God your God. And if you'll confess that you've placed your loyalty in all the wrong things, he promises to forgive you. And if you'll come to him and place your life in his hands and give your loyalty to him, then he promises to welcome you and to make you his. And so if that's you tonight, will you do that? Will you make this God your God? If you're not sure how to do that, speak to someone. Speak to me. We'd love to help you know this God as your God. Because he is the only God who is worthy of our worship. Let me pray.